but without eyebrows, the sweat will run into my eyes. A noble princess doesn't sweat. And blackened teeth just look weird. I won't be able to laugh anymore. A noble princess doesn't open her mouth and laugh. Even a princess must sweat and laugh out loud sometimes, or want to cry, or get mad and shout. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 21. We are back to Cole's choice. What do you have for us today? My choice for us this time is The Tale of the Princess Kaguya from 2013, directed by Isao Takahata, coming from the legendary animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I did want to mention right up front, we don't usually say this because we are usually talking about films that are decades old, but if you haven't seen the movie yet, you might want to pause the podcast and go watch it because on the show, we talk about plot points in intricate detail, including what might be considered spoilers. So if you are averse to that, stop, go watch the movie, and then come back and listen to the discussion. And unpause. Okay, now we're back. (laughs) The movie itself is based upon The Tale of the Bamboo Cutter, which is the oldest, or considered the oldest, extant narrative prose story in Japanese literature. The story itself dating back to the 10th century, and poetic sources even earlier than that. So I guess we really didn't have to give a spoiler alert if it's over a thousand years old. (laughs) Yeah. Where have you been? (laughs) It's been adapted tons of times, actually. It's a hugely popular story in Japanese culture. The other most notable, massively popular influence it's had is on Sailor Moon, probably, is where other people who are familiar with anime or manga, something that they might recognize even if they only have a cursory interest in it sailor moon is huge and that sort of takes some of its mythology from this story and i was coming into this as a complete novice including any sort of sailor moon or anime or manga well you picked a beautiful one to start with you've seen a couple of the miyazaki films sadly and embarrassingly only a couple We'll get into how I feel about animation at some point, but I'm a novice on all levels with this. And so with that, I have to actually ask a question first before we get into any of this, which is, why did you make me watch this movie? Because I'm still devastated. (laughs) We can get into that in more detail too, but I do want to tell everyone how mad you were (laughs) yeah if you want to stop the podcast right now and not have to hear me cry or yell or at any other point you might want to do that not that anything was wrong with the film no it's beautiful you bastard (laughs) it's beautiful and devastating it is that is exactly right even the credits opening credits come up it's already one of the most beautiful pieces of animation i've ever seen with all of the charcoal and watercolor Recalling all of these beautiful Japanese canvases. It's like art come to life. Well, it is art come to life. Very much so. 
And after the credits, appropriately enough for a fairy tale, a folk tale like this, it begins once upon a time. Slightly before that, though, I was immediately struck by the beautiful score. It's a gorgeous piano piece that plays through the very, very beginning and that comes back later on. The but score it's is lovely, listen, lovely to listen to. Because it works in a song that the children sing and that is central to Princess Kaguya's character arc as well. And so you hear all of these little iterations of that tune over and over again. It's really effective and you hear it in piano, in orchestra, on the koto when she is practicing later on in the film. In voice, in natural sound, in other things as well. Okay, so we've established that it looks beautiful, it sounds beautiful, and it begins with the titular, at least, of the original story, the bamboo cutter in the forest. He discovers a glowing stalk of bamboo, and it directs him in his discovery of a tiny little, what seems to be, human woman. A princess that could fit in the palm of your hand. And he takes it as a blessing from heaven. Which is dodgy if let me back up i read when i was a kid i loved folk tales fairy tales i devoured grimms and all of that stuff that was in my childcraft books and world book encyclopedias and then graduated on to world mythology and loved that just as much did you read a ton of that when you were little i think i read as many fairy tales as probably the average kid mm -hmm. but i got really excited by mythology, specifically Greek and Roman. Mm. And I remember when I finally had my own buying power as a young teenager and could go off on my own, I got a Bullfinch's mythology, and that was my favorite. But not much Japanese? No, none of that. Because the Asian, specifically Japanese mythology, was always one of my favorite things, too. Specifically because there are so many... Well, every culture has the trickster but within Japanese mythology, especially when you are in the forest or in the mountains, like this film is set, it is, best case scenario, a 50-50 proposition when you run into something supernatural in the forest that it is going to be a blessing from heaven, like the bamboo cutter thought. Just as often, if not more, it's going to be something that unhinges its jaw and swallows you whole, or visit some sort of terrible revenge upon you, even though you probably weren't involved in the thing that set it off in the first place. Well, similarly to that, the things that I was reading were all about basically Zeus raping you and turning in you into a cow. So it could go one of two ways. You would birth a god or you would be a cow. Lovely though, a cow. In this case, he's right. Fortunately. It whew. is a blessing from heaven. <laughs> right. Dodge that bullet. Right. She does not open her little teeny human mouth to swallow him whole. No. He instead takes her up and takes her back to his home and shows her to his wife, who immediately tries to take the princess from him. And the second that she does, the second there's a maternal touch, the little tiny princess turns into a, a regular-sized human infant immediately and begins to carry on the way a human baby would. There's an interesting back and forth immediately with them about, I found her, she's mine. The bamboo cutter definitely wants to lay some sort of claim and protect the thing that he found, but the maternal instinct wins out. It doesn't say anywhere prior to that why they are childless. I assume 
most likely that they can't have children. And so as she is carrying this now human baby, she discovers that all of a sudden she's producing milk, which is a completely foreign sensation to her. I get the feeling. And they're also older at this point, mm-hmm. too. So it's not, it's very clearly not a natural thing. It's a miraculous thing exactly. that's happening. And I want to say that they both sort of jockey for position, but from a sense of wanting to love and give to the baby, not as a, not as this is my possession. No, it was very much a protective paternal thing. I guess lay claim. Did I say lay claim? I guess that's, if I said that, I thought that. If I said that, that's not exactly the right connotation. It is very much about paternity and maternity and wanting to and immediately being filled with this feeling of wanting to give this child everything you can possibly give them and the thing i was taken with from the very beginning but at this point already maybe 10 minutes in i guess at at this point is there's no irony in this movie there's only pure joy there is this feeling of serenity and radiance the plum blossoms in bloom. Everything is filled with the sights and sounds of nature. And it is so comforting and pleasant. And I want to pause and just look at every frame. Hand-drawn animation is becoming less and less prevalent, obviously, with CGI and with all the computer things that Pixar does. Although some of those things are in and of themselves beautiful and really entertaining films. There's nothing that's ever going to replace the craftsmanship and beauty of hand-drawn animation for me. I love it so much, and I want to live in this movie. I understand that as well, because I've seen you sleep on floors with no pillows. And so I can see you definitely adapting to that. I had such a strong emotional reaction to this movie. I don't know if you had it quite as strongly as I did. I think I did to different things. Mm, Okay. Which we'll, we'll mention later when I'm crying and wailing and gnashing my teeth. And as you mentioned, we're fully in the natural world, in the ancient natural world as well. And it's quite beautiful. And we see the progression of the seasons, which is gorgeous to watch, as Kaguya is growing at a rapid rate. At this point, Little Bamboo. Yes. She gets her nickname from her her neighbors who see her growing so quickly and they liken her to Bamboo. The village children, more characters that I just love to death specifically for a couple of reasons. They are not taken aback by her rapid growth. There's no fear or suspicion. Even though she's clearly not normal. They don't know necessarily that she is supernatural in origin, but they watch her grow, what would you say, five times as fast, ten times as fast as a normal human child? Definitely. You literally feel her get heavier as she's nursing. As she takes a tumble down a hillside, she suddenly spurts three inches. And these have a few of my favorite parts in this sort of beginning section of her growth into a young person who can speak. And that's all of these beautiful observations about how toddlers are. There's one moment where she is kind of balancing on her head and doing little somersaults as babies do. And it's so much fun. And then my other absolute favorite part is the frog with the spiders. Yeah, those are both great. The tumbling around part is actually where she's first introduced to the village children when she's doing her clumsy naked acrobatics in their hut. And they see what a silly and 
energetic and crazy and fun kid is now in the village. They've got a new friend. And as I said, I love those observations of human nature and the natural world. And I'm reminded of something that I read, and I believe it was actually Takahata who said, it possibly was Miyazaki, I'm going to have to look again. One of those two folks said that the problem with animation these days is it's done by humans who don't want to look at other humans. Mm. And so that's why I respond so much to this, because it feels so from such a place of love. Mm -hmm. That feeling exactly is what I was experiencing when I mentioned how serene it feels to me. It certainly takes all the time in the world to stop and look around, literally smell the flowers. Not just flowers, but birds and bugs and beasts, grass, flowers, and trees, like the song that they will repeat over and over again. Everything in the natural world, as the song goes, teaches people how to be. And how to feel, very specifically in the song. And this is why I hesitate a lot with animation in general, because I actually want to look at faces. Mm -hmm. I want to see what faces do and I want to see what eyes do and I want to see what emotion comes behind those eyes and I think they actually captured that in this film. Most animation doesn't do that for you. For example, a ton of Disney things. I have a few Disney favorites and I know you have a couple. Definitely. There will always be exceptions but by and large that's what keeps me away. I think that I just want to see another person do these things or be in this story. And I know that's limited and it it means that I don't tend to seek out animation. I'm happy when I find it and happy when I experience it. There are very specific, wonderful examples that I can cite, but in general, I'm not going to seek it out. Which ones would you cite that won't necessarily spoil a recommendation later? Yes. And I still want to say what my recommendation is, but I'll, I'll wait. I'll okay. wait, I'll wait. But you know how much I love Sleeping Beauty, for mm-hmm. example. And part of that is because it comes from the world of art, and that's reflected in the animation. Down to something like Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, which is one of your favorites, and I never would have gotten to it. Mm-hmm. And think it's so much fun and, and a joy to watch. Full disclosure, that year I did not laugh harder at any single movie that I went to see in a theater. That thing killed me. Tears rolling down my face. It is a blast. Great movie. One of my all-time favorite animated, hand-drawn or not. I love that one. And then all the way through to one of my top three favorite television shows of all time, which is The Simpsons. Mm. I never get tired of watching it. Never get tired of watching it. And, and it's animation, clearly. And it conveys the emotion that... It does it, convey the emotion. And I, I think that that comes down to the talent of the writing and the voice artists, specifically. But they've created wonderful characters. Anyway, back to this. Back to the natural world. Yes. You see how in tune she is with it. But it doesn't overplay that hand because there's an episode... Well, you mentioned the frog and the spiders. Mm-hmm. But there's an episode not long after that where she joyfully discovers a bunch of wild boar piglets. And of course she runs over to play with them because they're adorable. Yeah. But she is not wise enough in the ways of the natural world yet to realize somewhere, if there are several wild boar piglets, there is a mother wild boar that wants to protect those piglets. She didn't see the um, wild world of Disney where in our world it's the little bear cubs. Mm. Don't get between the bear cub and the mama. 
it's this incident with the wild boars in which she is saved from danger by the eldest of the village children that become her playmates and they strike up a fast friendship and they are very welcoming to her she is they recognize her as a weird kid but they love her and immediately take to her so it shows them playing and frolicking and they are walking down the mountain path singing this song at which point she realizes that somehow she knows more of the song than they do and she wanders off and sings this extra verse that is much more melancholy and she is standing at the edge of the hill crying singing this song but again it doesn't put them off they just think oh this is just little bamboo and this is the song we alluded to that begins at the very beginning of the film and is woven through and we start to hear more words at this point quite beautiful and the part that i had mentioned specifically about to teach people how to feel Mm. this is why we are here simultaneously to this since she has wandered off from where her father is working in the bamboo grove he is now looking for her and he stumbles upon another glowing stalk of bamboo this time full of gold while that is taking place stimadu takes little bamboo to meet his family who are also humble peasant folk they're artisans they're bowl makers in particular and there's a detail that i love so much and again it's the hand-drawn thing that makes it stand out to me maybe it wouldn't be as obvious or as beautiful i think but there's a bandage on the mother's foot as she is working one of these bowls that is just the most beautiful kind of melancholy sad but industrious detail that takahata puts in everything that he makes The thing that I really responded to in this general section is it's summertime. And so we get the sounds of the insects of summer. And I don't know, I guess you would have to tell me, if you're not from the South, does it sound the same? Because that's what my whole childhood sounds like. Cicadas, you mean, in particular, that sort of thing? Mm -hmm. Couldn't tell you. I've only lived in Oklahoma and Texas, so I've had them my whole life. Okay. So it's not just a special memory for me. But it is a special special memory. memory for me. It's just not exclusive to Virginia, let's say. I'm pretty sure cicadas and that sort of nighttime singing insect are just about everywhere, I would guess, unless it's maybe extremely cold. Another illusion dashed by Cole, <laughs> like when we go to the trail at the YMCA and there are little animal tracks and you tell me that they were made by stamping things, not little animals. I really thought little deer and chickens had walked over the trail at specific intervals. Specific I really believed that. uniform intervals, leaving flawless tracks. Maybe they did. Maybe they did. <laughs> yeah, whatever. That's what I have to say to that. <laughs> anyway, it's the lovely sounds of summer. We've seen Stemaru's family. And now... He and Little Bamboo stumble into a field with melons where they abscond with a couple. Also my dream. <laughs> it's a great way to spend a summertime. It sure is. As Little Bamboo grows both physically and emotionally, getting to know the village children and becoming kind of a tomboy she's definitely a mountain girl Mm -hmm. the whole time the father is periodically going to the bamboo grove finding gold building up a cache and in one particularly notable instance he is rewarded with a reign of the most luxurious silk robes that he's ever seen 
And this to him is finally the clear sign that she is special. She is meant to be taken care of as a noble princess. And so his goal becomes to move them to the capital. Where he wants to build this fine house. And achieve the rank and status that it would seem to him heaven is indicating that she deserves. So we move through this beautifully rendered cycle of harvests. And we come to a scene where the kids are harvesting mountain grapes in the woods. And they come upon a pheasant, which they chase and catch. It's going to be a huge production. They're going to make this delicious stew with grapes and mushrooms that they find in this pheasant. And this is the scene, I think, that underlines to me one of my favorite things. In fact, about all of the Studio Ghibli heroines, there's a hallmark of all of those characters with these young girls and young women that they are entirely fearless. There's no sense of propriety. There's no worrying about, should I do this? There's only focusing on fun and adventure and running and jumping and climbing and being fully immersed in their world with no fear. It's one of my favorite things. Spirited Away in particular is the other one that I think of when I think of my favorite Ghibli heroines, but Kaguya, or at this point still Little Bamboo, she ranks right up there at the top of those for me. And I think again about Miyazaki being, to my mind, a little bit more of the visible of the two of Studio Ghibli True. compared to Takahata. And Miyazaki in particular, an unabashed feminist, mm-hmm. vocally, intentionally, not accidentally. So I see what you're saying. To me, it feels more like just basic humanism. To me, it reflects more the world I want to live in and that there are no distinctions. This is an activity for everyone, and we don't even have to think about it anymore. And that is the world that you live in and that you have built, but not everybody else lives in that world. So it does stand out, actually. Right, and it definitely appeals to me because it reinforces the things that I would like to see and believe in. It's a fantastic characteristic of these young female characters that you see in the great majority of the Studio Ghibli films. Stimaru has a premonition of her leaving at this point, which is then not unfounded because as soon as she gets back to the homestead, her father announces, we are moving to the capital. Put your things there. We're leaving all this behind. Right this second. Right. Really. For me, it was that Citizen Kane moment. When she forever leaves behind her childhood. Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) If you haven't caught up with Citizen Kane by now. Get on it, kids. So it's on the road to the capital, and she awakens in her new home. Kind of confused. I'm sure she has slept on the way and missed a lot of that. And so when she comes to, she is actually in the mansion that her father has bought with all of the gold he has gathered from the bamboo grove. Her parents, who are obviously having great fun with it still at this point, present her with a huge wardrobe of luxurious robes that she's never seen, and this is when they tell her, these all belong to you. You are a noble princess now. This is your home. And she treats it with a degree of wonderment and delight. It's a new thing to explore. But, of course, there's the realization that she's not She doesn't have her mountain friends anymore. She doesn't have that mountain life. But there are still, she thinks, joys to be discovered. The pond. Can I go swim in the pond? Certainly. She absolutely responds to the new environment like a mountain girl 
would, true to her own nature. She runs and jumps and climbs on things, and she notices the pond and wants to go swimming. She still is that girl at heart, not realizing yet that things are different. And she's essentially now in a museum or a cage, really. And so this is where we meet Lady Sagami, who will be her tutor. Her guide to becoming a lady. Exactly. The person who will teach her airs and graces, which she is not predisposed to. I love the part where she has uh, one of the robes on and then is running out of it. And then you just see the robe collapse down on the ground because it doesn't have a person in it. Uh, Again, these wonderful human touches, these things that actually you could watch in the world happen. So what we're saying is girls just want to have fun. Makeup and dressing and not sweating and not laughing. Yeah. This is uh, when I started to get more depressed and those sort of more strident emotions started to come to me of what is expected of women and what are we expected to give up? It started for me just a hair before that when the robe sequence happened, when he decided this is what this means. It's a dodgy thing to interpret the will of the heavens. But if you read enough mythology, or even religion, there are all kinds of signs and portents that people are constantly interpreting. Or misinterpreting. But yeah. And so, again, 50-50 proposition. If you don't quite have a grasp on the will of the gods, how legitimate is it for you to make these decisions, not only for you, but for your wife and now daughter? And you were feeling this particularly keenly because... Well, I actually didn't think about it until you just said it this second, but when I was a kid, I have two wonderful aunts. Wonderful, wonderful. They had, I think, definite ideas about what a girl should look like and do. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to wear dresses with starched collars and matching shoes and gloves and hats and things like that. And that's what a lot of that time was for me, not feeling like, well, what I look like is just not okay. Mm. Who I am is not okay. I want to go run and play with some basketball and look at frogs and spiders or whatever, or none of those things, but this is clearly not the thing that I want. And there's someone taking me and putting me in that dressing room and handing that thing into me and saying, put it on. Dictating to you. Yeah. From love. Sure. From what they really, truly wanted to have for me and probably wanted me to look better than the urchin that I probably look like. <laughs> but still, it was not It was not fun. It was not me. And so did you tell them that? How did you respond to that? Or I, did prob- you just... I probably just threw fits. And my nickname was uh, Pout and Polly. So <laughs> if that gives you any <laughs> idea. <laughs> A very regal name. Did you get that at the naming ceremony? <laughs> yes. Very noble. But you just, you don't have agency at that point. And a girl in medieval Japan also does not. So when did you feel like you achieved that agency? Is there something in particular that you went through? Or was it just kind of a gradual evolution and there was no eureka moment? No uh, moment where you stood up to the person that was dictating to you? I or... think every moment of my life was a eureka moment of so clearly, I don't want this, let's find what I do want. But I guess like most Americans, when you can drive. Yeah, that's a big one. 
that certainly encourages your independent movement. But uh, if it had been 50 years prior, or in this instance, many centuries prior, I would be getting married off. Not if you're clever enough. Not if you task your suitors with impossible... True. Which we'll get to. Yes. But in this period, this is when Kaguya, still little bamboo at this point, is getting all of her lessons and becoming a true lady. And it's really disheartening. It's, it makes me very sad to look at. It takes away every, every element that is of a natural human woman to create a mask. Even though she's obviously rebelling still at this point. You're more depressed by the notion that... Does it feel like it's an irresistible force that she will eventually have to acquiesce to? It clearly is. She doesn't have other options. This isn't where you can be a rich person and make your own decisions. It is clearly inevitable. There wouldn't be people like Lady Sagami if that was not the case. And then on the flip side of that, there wouldn't be servants if that wasn't the mm. case. Also, we meet my very favorite character, which is the little short servant girl. And I say little servant girl because I cannot pronounce the character's name properly. It's hard to say, so I'm okay. going to say it once very slowly. Okay. May no warawa. That last bit of it with all the R's and W's and A's trips me up every time. So that's who we mean. And she's she is awesome. She's great. But I probably won't try to say it and get tongue tied every time. Good plan. So as she's going through her lessons, it is also pointed out to us that. The mother isn't necessarily comfortable in this environment either because she, much to her husband's chagrin, spends an awful lot of time either in her garden or in the kitchen or doing other servant-type tasks. She's doing the weaving. She's doing the mending. She's making things. She's a mountain girl at heart, too. She is. So did it not strike you in the same way that it struck me as female sacrifice, loss of identity, loss of property. No, it definitely struck me as that. But again, it's like you mentioned, it's not from malice. It's only because he wants the best for her. The thing is, and in this case, he's slightly buffoonish. There's a little bit of caricature to this character in how much he is obsessed with rank and status. And, and looking how, properly and sounding properly and doing the proper thing. And how much it blinds him to the true nature of his daughter and what would bring her the most happiness. If he indeed wants to raise her to be the happiest that she can be, he's missing all of those things because he is so concerned with the way her nobility is perceived by everyone else. We chatted about this for just a second, you know, the, the male-female points of view. And, of course, we're not seeing the story from Prince Kaguya, but I don't think it would be the same story. I, I do really feel that it is grounded from a feminine standpoint. It's a feminine story. Uh, it certainly wouldn't be the same story. If it was Prince Kaguya, if he found a little tiny male baby in the forest, it would likely be raised as a warrior in that time frame, I would guess. Or a politician. Or both. Also sacrifice. Also, you may not be able to speak your true nature. It just doesn't quite feel the same to me. There's something in me that's still feeling so much the poignant nature of the story from the feminine standpoint. Is that repression, though, of your true nature not a classic general Japanese characteristic? Interesting question. 
So I don't know, but some look of it at, may come from that. I think it's a cross culture because I do think it's a cross culture at this point, certainly. But, yes, thank you. Yes, right. But in the original source material, there may be some of that traditional reserved innerness that at that point was not cross cultural. Mm-hmm. Good point. Further reading for our <laughs> book discussion group. This is where she's really pushing back, though. This is where she and Lady Sagami have that exchange that we did in our opening scene, where she clearly is trying to tell everyone what is in her heart. I want to be robust. I want to laugh and jump and shout and cry and feel everything. And really, she's not saying, I want to be a girl. She's saying, I want to be human. Yes, just a whole person. And that is discouraged, clearly, because we are leading up to the naming ritual where she has to comport herself like a demure young princess. And she is to be looked at and listened to for her gifts, not for her intellect or personality or... It's interesting to me, though, that the old man that comes to do the naming ritual, I think he is the person outside of her immediate circle, outside of her mother. He is the one person that I think sees her true nature and names her accordingly. He does, but the only thing that gives the a little bit of a lie to that is that it's all about her physical appearance or at least that's what sticks with me not exactly to me because of the part of the name that includes the reference to the supple bamboo that resilience is, is what i get from that there's a connotation of resilience and natural beauty that is not what suitors for example will observe but what people who see her heart will know about her I guess I'll say we need to just watch it again. Mm -hmm. It bears repeated viewing oh, because sure. you want to see what signals did I miss of what we find out later? What other hidden elements or pieces of mythology are there that we didn't notice because we aren't as familiar? That's a thing that I always regret. Well, regret's a strong word, but anytime I'm watching films from other cultures, just not having that innate knowledge i know there are things that i'm missing that i may never get true that i'm going to have to do a ton of reading to get the full cultural context of and so i always have that pang that feels like ah, oh, there's just a little bit more to this that i might never really fully understand that's why you really have to also read the da vinci code more than once <laughs> she receives her beautiful name at this point her new name Kaguya. And now it's time for the next transition, which is to be married. Well, first there's the banquet. There's a huge party to celebrate her naming ritual. And it goes on for three days and nights. And she laments that she is not even at her own party because she is sequestered away from the prying eyes of all of the visitors. And she's not even on display, per se. There's, no, she's there's hidden. This clear thing that this is where she is and it's it's such a tease in an unpleasant way it's, it makes me it makes me feel really uncomfortable well it's a sad scene because quite legitimately the revelers after they've been drinking for three days begin to get a little more boisterous and start to question her beauty because they're not allowed to see her what if she's a goblin mm-hmm and they also question the legitimacy of the family's rise in status. Yeah, that it's all purchased. Mm -hmm. It's all new money, really. And who are these people to proclaim that they have this princess? So she overhears all of this, 
And this starts one of my favorite sequences in the whole film. Definitely. She... Her flight. Exactly. Her escape. She runs furiously, and there's no other word to describe it. Shedding robes, heading towards the full moon. And it looks like no other piece in the film, too. The artwork is so distinct in this. Mm -hmm. I think the artwork, again, matches so perfectly with the content in this particular section because that the raw emotion of what she is going through, the art reverts to a very elementary style that reflects that perfectly. It's just beautiful. So she returns after this flight in the middle of the night to her mountain home to discover that the forest is barren and... And she runs into a man who's tending an oven who explains to her that every 10 years or so, the forest needs to replenish itself. So everyone has gone away and the friends that she is looking for may, may not come back in that time span, depending on how the forest rebounds from being worked so diligently. So she's got nothing. She's got no home to return to. One interesting thing in this, since she is still an infant, this is her first cycle of seasons. She is a grown woman at this point, practically, but because she grows in this rapid, supernatural way, she's never seen more than spring, summer, autumn, and winter. And so he points out to her, spring is coming again, and it's a discovery for her. She realizes that it's going to all come back around again, so she has something to look forward to with the return of spring. But in the meantime, she wanders out into the snow in the winter, collapses, and again, another beautifully rendered scene, and awakes again to find herself back at the mansion, back at the party. And it's sort of broken her, because it's at this point that she begins to be the dutiful daughter and to engage in Lady Sagami's training. All the life is out of her voice at this point. Mm -hmm. it's, there's no laughter. Word of her beauty begins to spread, and she is besieged by suitors. What was your response to this particular part? If you feel like the training and the finishing school aspect, essentially, of what she's gone through up to now, she is obviously, her will has been bent to that a little bit. Now you have this layer of pursuit on top of it. What does that feel like? I was working up a real head of steam at this point at you. I was getting more upset because I actually don't think of her as a grown woman at this point. Mm. I think of her as a still a child and true to this era, she's still a teenager. Mm. She cannot be older than a teenager at this point. And I just thought of her as a child bride and it's just so upsetting to me. But this is this is modern me transferring onto an ancient story. But what it most reminded me of, these tasks that she sets for the suitors. Which she does because they all compare her to unattainable and even mythical, in some cases, objects or beings. Because she literally is. They still haven't seen her. She's still sequestered behind the screen. So all they do is hear her. So that's all that they can liken her to. So it's so unrealistic. Now, okay, again, I'm getting pretty dark here, but I just start to think of her wedding night and how unprepared she is. It, it just makes me upset. <laughs> I feel like I'm watching Law & Order SVU. Fortunately, that <laughs> night does not come yeah. because... She sets these impossible tasks for these five suitors. Right. Bring Every, me back these things. Yes. Everything they compare her to, she tasks them with going to retrieve those impossible things. And uh, going back again to the things I've had in my life, what it most closely reminded me of was in Mer The Merchant of Venice. 
that what Portia's father has set out for her for these three suitors. It's not exactly the same, but it immediately came to mind. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of fun to spot what someone may have read this story and then what they wrote hundreds of years later, but still possibly inspired by. Sure, but still hundreds of years prior to us. Yes. So after she tasks her suitors with these impossible things, her father is just aghast. And at this point, her tutor, Lady Sagami, quits in frustration. She says, there's nothing more I can do here. She's a lost cause, really. Mm. I'm out. And so it is at this point, without the specter of Lady Sagami and her tutelage hanging over her, that she escapes to the countryside once again. To have a moment of getting back into the natural world. She takes a trip with her mother and her lady-in-waiting that we love so much, the little one, to go see the cherry blossoms. And I got really upset again because she ruins their fun. Well... They're so excited to go out and she realizes that she can't experience it in the way that she imagines that she will. That's how I read it and she ruins the I day read for it them. as this. She bumps into that child. She knocks that baby over and turns to look and immediately is reminded of her mountain friends that she can't be with is what it felt like to me. And so therefore she can't enjoy it. Obviously it's not necessarily kosher that she ruins everyone else's fun, but it was more than it's a a huge void in her life and a significant pain. It's not just her being capricious. Well, I still say tough shit. (laughs) Suck it up and let your mom have some damn fun and the cutest little servant person on the planet have some fun in the cherry blossoms. Enjoy it for a second then. Stop being a big pout and Polly. <laughs> On the return trip from seeing the cherry blossoms, coincidentally, as they're going through a village, this is where she sees Stimaru again. And this is now years later, so he is a grown man. And he's being chased through the streets because he is a thief. He has stolen a chicken. I'm sorry, not a grown man. He's he's a young man. But he is on his own, clearly. Yes. Trying to survive any way he can. Obviously, he's stealing to eat. Based on what we know of his character. He's not a criminal. No, not at all. He is hungry. And this is the only way that he's going to eat that day. Unfortunately, he's caught and beaten in the street. And this is the last thing she sees of him. Thinking maybe ever as her carriage rolls away. He laying there in the rain-soaked street. Beaten to a pulp. And this may be the last image she has of him. And then three years pass. The suitors begin to return with these mythical objects that they have been sent to retrieve. So I was watching a a Law & Order SVU episode during this. What were you thinking about? I was thinking more about the folklore element of it again. Because at this point, you're talking about the Buddha's bowl. You're talking about a jewel on the neck of a dragon. And so I was thinking about all of those things from folklore and mythology and knowing in general how these things play out. So I felt that she was going to be fine because as it always happens, some of them bring the items back, but of course they're fraudulent. They have them made by artisans or they try to make an end run around the rules a little bit. They are not the thing that they set out for, and they are not the thing she asked for. And the suitors have the nerve to be angry at her for her calling them out on their lies, on the fact that these objects are 
not the genuine article. Almost as if it's a metaphor for her being an imposter, not really a human, not really of noble rank. And one of them brings a flower. And that part was so fascinating because... This one starts to speak from what we think is the heart. I got caught up in it. Oh, absolutely. He has this entire speech about you had set this task and I realized how shallow and hollow it was. And I brought you this one thing, this one beautiful natural thing. He tempts her with nature, which makes us think it kind of, it dupes us into thinking maybe he does understand something about her after all. And he says, let's go to these places. Let's go out to the mountains. Let's have these adventures. And I got very caught up in that. And it's so neat what happens next. Well, he's a charlatan, of course, just like all of them. Is, And this is where my Law & Order SVU history comes <laughs> back into play. Suddenly there is one of his other wives. We then realize it gets said a couple of times that they have multiple wives. So again, it's not our sort of American culture that we're used to. But one of his other previous wives shows up and says, basically, you gave me that line and you dumped me. And she's just going to be another in this series as she is getting caught up in it. And then that brings that illusion right down to the ground. So they all fail. One also fails just because he's not equipped. He does not have the courage to get the jewel from the neck of the dragon. And ultimately, the thing that happens that finally cracks the whole thing for her, one of them dies in pursuit of an object that he's trying to retrieve from a nest. He breaks his back and does not survive. And no one is set up to be in sort of the Disney mold of the male hero, mm -hmm. really. We, we don't particularly like any of these suitors. No. We're not rooting for any not of at them. All. They are. But still... He dies. Mm -hmm. And this is where I'm starting to get really mad. But really, <laughs> I thought, oh, there's going to be a scene later on that shows her getting raped on her wedding night. That's what you were waiting for? <laughs> I was waiting for is something this... really terrible. Because it you... is PG. Mm -hmm. It's not G. No. But still, I was getting set up for something really dark. Do you think that's a function of... My terrible twisted mind and how much terrible <laughs> twisted television i watch is that what it is it's, it's just non-stop episodes of american greed it's non-stop american greed and <laughs> svu like i mentioned and probably a misspent childhood i guess and the the child bride of what is it called something creek with conrad bain about conrad polygamists <laughs> that i saw when i was a kid and it really upset me Okay, so you have a mountain of... Of terrible references. Sure. To go to. Stretching back is, centuries. And this is terrible enough. This is a true human thing in an animated world that one of the suitors dies. Because of this thing that she set out, and of course the way that he chose to go about it. Mm -hmm. But The emperor in the meantime has gotten wind of her now. And he arrogantly assumes that she is for him. All of these other men have failed because she obviously should be a prize for the emperor. Yeah, he's the emperor for Pete's sake. She refuses, even threatening suicide. Tells her father, you can send me, certainly, I'll go. The second I'm there, that's it. I'm ending it all. I was still waiting for wedding night suicide at this point. Which is not uncommon yep. in Japanese folklore and these stories. It is not outside the realm of possibility. Hilarious. <laughs> Good time had by all. 
Did I mention this is PG and not a comedy? It's the Emperor's advances that actually set the finale in motion. He comes up and embraces her from behind, and she supernaturally escapes. She phases out of her body to escape his arms. The cry that her heart emits ultimately reveals her origin to us. Me still being slow in the uptake, I, I wasn't quite there yet. After all of this has happened and calmed down and she has gone back to life as she knew it before all of the suitors started to come around, her parents notice her every night in the pavilion gazing at the moon. And it turns out it's because when the emperor tried to grab her, the cry that her heart emitted went all the way to the moon, which is where she's from, as it turns out. They are now, having heard her cry, coming to retrieve her and take her back forever. On August 15th. Right, on the 15th of the month. So with the little time she has left, she returns to the mountains one last time, where, coincidentally, she runs into Stimadu again, who is now a grown man with a wife and child. And he says in an instant, let's run. Mm-hmm. Let's just go. We can be together. And we get that beautiful, beautiful sequence. Interestingly enough, I think a great detail in that sequence is he begins to pick her up. He begins to carry her, and she says, no, we are running side by side. She insists. As fast as we can. No one is carrying me. Again, this is completely egalitarian. Everyone on their own merit. You and I are equal. No one has to carry the other. This is a thing we do equally together. In that moment, what looks like a stumble right before they take flight... What did you feel when that happened? Was there anything in particular that... I can't quite remember except for my recurring dreams are about I fly in them, but it's like swimming. I did also, uh, Debbie Downer alert, I did think about the wife and the kid being left behind. Well, again, fortunately it doesn't come to that. Because as they are flying through the night sky, the moon comes out and begins to call to her again, and she asks, no, I just need a little more time. But before that, though, they fly everywhere, and, it's and a beautiful they skim sequence. over the water, and it's what I dream of being able to do. But what did you think with that stumble? You were, you oh, were it just made my heart skip, because oh. I wasn't sure what was going to happen. Oh, okay. Just that I wasn't sure if it was going to work. There's that slight hesitation that makes you catch your breath, that you're not sure what's going to happen. And then, of course, and then they go. it's majesty. Yes. Best part. Best, 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 best part. But the moon comes to call her back again, and then she plummets into the water. Stimaru falls also, awakens to find himself laying in the flowers in the grass. It was all his family, yeah. Was it all a dream? But hey, no harm, no foul. Right. Except moon people are coming. They are coming. And those moon people are jerks. No fortifications can protect you from... From the moon people. Not even our favorite character, servant girl in her samurai pose. <laughs> she can't even she can't even do it. They come to retrieve her, and as soon as she puts on the robe, she's going to forget everything she knows about life on Earth. And all the human empathy that she would feel for everyone she leaves behind, all of the sadness and happiness and sorrow and forgiveness, that will all be gone. Everything about being a human, will be lost to her forever. And there's a heart-wrenching scene where the parents plead, her earthly parents plead for her to stay or for her to take them with her, all to no avail. The worlds just cannot merge. 
This is probably when you were at your absolute angriest at me. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yep. Because it's unfair? Is there injustice in it? What is it that is motivating that that feeling? When I was a kid, I didn't know until I saw a couple of specific movies that people could be taken away from you, but they weren't dead. I knew what death was. Hmm. I saw my great-grandmother at her funeral thinking about misremembering back to the previous episode. I had this image in my head for years and years and years that I actually saw her in essentially sort of a clear plastic bubble mm -hmm. on top of her casket, which could not have been possible. But I had this vision of seeing her entire body, her entire dead body. I knew what it was to have death. This entire ending could be read as a metaphor for that. It could... But she still exists in the moon, and you could look at the moon every single day. Or is that, do you think, maybe that's obviously a Western perspective. And if I was a Buddhist, for instance, I am not thinking of it that way. Possibly. But to continue on with this extended metaphor of mine, I didn't know that things could be taken away, but they still, they still existed. Mm -hmm. Which is what it feels like these days when something dies, that... We're still left here. The world still continues on. That's the worst part, is every day afterwards. And so that's a shift from your childhood consciousness to your adult consciousness yeah. that you felt? I think so, yeah. But watching this movie so recalled back things of my childhood. Hmm. I thought a lot about E.T., which I had toyed with having as my recommendation. That's the first time I realized... Something could be taken away, and it still is there, but you can't ever touch it or see it again. But it's still existing with you. And that's not enough. That's the cruelest existence. Because I read it just slightly less depressing than that, in that, as she explains that with the robe, she's going to forget everything. That clearly doesn't happen. She is still that rebellious spirit, and there's something within her that makes it so that she is able to resist. She turns back and takes a last look. Even with the robe on, she's able to fight through that. Because she does tell that story about in the moon kingdom, there is one woman mm -hmm. who had gone to Earth and then was recalled back to the moon. And she had the robe on, but she clearly still remembered her past because that's where the song comes from. So there's not enough satisfaction in the fact that, quite obviously, with that scene at the end, she's looking back, there's not enough satisfaction that she's still going to carry this with her, even if she never returns. It's the rest of us that are left behind. <laughs> okay. That's what bothers me. It's the parent. We don't see the parents again. We don't know what happens to them. I'm going to tell one more childhood story. The way I grew up uh, when I was really young, just starting in elementary school, my dad was a truck driver and my mother was in nursing school. So my dad would be gone for short periods of time. And my mom was studying and in school all the time. And so our across the street neighbors, the hunters, whom I considered to be my second family, I went over every morning at about 4.35 a.m. because my mom had a long drive to get to her college. Mm -hmm. I slept on their couch every single school morning got up and got dressed and ate breakfast with them and got on the school bus with them. And when 
my mom would forget to bring clothes over. I had to wear Matthew's <laughs> boy clothes. He was two years older than me. Um, Some sweet grew, animals. Probably. I grew up that way. And I remember, and we still talk about it, actually, that time at which I was actually old enough to be on my own in the house when I didn't have to go do that anymore. And I would still go over mm. after school because I couldn't let that peace go mm -hmm. it was really difficult for me and this movie is recalling all of these things and it was i'm feeling quite emotional right now actually it's that so many older buried feelings i guess i didn't spend long enough with my psychiatrist or something <laughs> that recalling all of these things that i felt as a small child which she still really is mm. but yes it's the it's the terrible fate of everyone who's left behind i see that I keenly feel and I'm really mad at you about. <laughs> but yet, still a jewel. Still one of the best yes. things I've seen in them. But don't ask me if I'm glad that I watched it. Okay. I withdraw the question. <laughs> An interesting postscript to this, because this is where the movie ends. Yes. What feels like quite suddenly. The end. Bye, everybody. There's no epilogue, as it were. Not in the movie. In the story... The actual tale of the bamboo cutter. Right. The 10th century version of this. When the emperor is informed of her return to the moon, he asks which mountain is the highest, which one is the closest to heaven, and he dispatched warriors to go to the mountain to burn the letter that she wrote him, the farewell letter, and to burn the elixir of life that she left him because he doesn't want to be immortal if she's not here. I feel you hoping really that emperor. the smoke from his message will reach up to her on the moon and she will get the message. The legend part of that that plays out in actual Japanese history is that the word for immortality is Fuji, and that's how Mount Fuji gets its name. Because knowledge is power. <laughs> the thing I guess that we should ask is why I chose it, because this one is so different from anything we've done before. First off, contemporary. Mm -hmm. We don't have separately or together a very specific history with no. the film there's no big story around how we came to it no i only recently saw it for the first time in the past few weeks but i thought it was important to talk about it because well the reason i chose it is because it gave me that very distinct feeling that i don't get very often that i can only recall a handful of times in my life where i'm so immediately taken with something where I fall in love with it from the very first second, and I know that I am watching something that is going to be a beloved classic for generations to come. Like when you saw my picture for the first time, probably. <laughs> exactly. That is exactly what I felt. <laughs> Your picture for the first time and Watership Down. Those may yeah. be the two things I can think of right yeah, off. Thanks again for making me watch that. <laughs> I avoided that studiously as a kid <laughs> again Jeez. brilliant and beautiful yeah it is and great music but yeah there are such a small handful of things that immediately give me that feeling that i respond to so powerfully right away that i thought it would be fun to choose one based on that rather than something that we have a long history with yeah, this is what I chose because I seldom feel this a lightning strike, almost, is what it feels like. Immediately, I loved it from the first second. One thing I wanted to do that refers back to the trickster elements of Japanese folklore, I wanted to give you a test. Okay. It's a very simple test. Do you want red paper 
or blue paper? Oh, shoot. Red. Uh-oh. <laughs> Did I just get swallowed whole? No. You got cut to ribbons until blood stains all of your clothing. Oh, great. There is a malicious, and I do mean malicious, demon in Japanese folklore called Akamanto, which means red cape in translation, that essentially haunts public and school bathrooms, specifically the last stall. So if you're ever in the last stall or in any stall. Whoever goes into the last, you're just asking for it. Public restroom. And you hear a mysterious voice ask if you want blue paper or red paper. Uh, run. Mm, See? No, can get you. With these spirits, there's frequently a loophole, but you have to play it just right. Oh, so you can't say purple. Exactly. Bad choice. Oh, no. If you say purple, if you say any color, well, here's... If you say yellow, okay. Well, we'll go back to the red and the blue first. Okay. okay. If you say red, obviously you're Bloody. cut to ribbons. Mm-hmm. If you say blue, you're strangled until you turn that color. Oh, great! Thanks. So those are your two primary okay. choices. If you decide, oh, I'm going to get clever, and you say yellow, you get your face shoved in the toilet, but you survive. Oh, gross! And if you choose any other color but red, blue, or yellow, thinking you're going to outsmart. Akamanto, I'm not going to say another color. You're dragged to the netherworld. Oh. The one way to get out of this is to say no paper. Oh, sure. Okay. And then... What did I think of that? He leaves. Presumably oh. to tell other everyone how Wait gross you are. <laughs> hey, no paper in, in stall number six. <laughs> Check that one out. Not big on the hygiene, that one. Ugh. But... Wait you do get away time. with your life. Okay. So That's a good thing. If you are ever in the last stall and you hear that question. No paper. No paper. Or at the very least, yellow. Yeah. It's better than <laughs> you another get, world. You get away with your life if you yeah. choose yellow. Yeah. Was there anything else that you wanted to get into before? Yes. I am curious. And I'm asking you specifically because you have more experience in this than I do. So as we had talked about much earlier, this was my first Takahata. And I've only seen a very small handful of Miyazaki, the two pillars of Studio Ghibli, essentially. Do you have a favorite of the two? Not a specific favorite film of either of them, but do you find that one speaks to you more than the other? That is a tough question. I do, but it's super close. It is a razor-thin margin. I would say Takahata is my favorite, but only by the narrowest of margins. Because I sort of see Takahata as the John Cazale of Studio Mm. Ghibli. Mm -hmm. Not nearly as prolific as Miyazaki, but every single one out of the park. Just batting a thousand. Not a misstep in his catalog, as far as I'm concerned. Also, there's the whole thing about his stuff being much more melancholy, which is What's going to appeal to you, definitely. More so than... But I do I'm, I do love Spirited Away. I do love Kiki's Delivery Service. There's a lot of fun, joyful elements of Studio Ghibli that I like. But what speaks to me at my deepest levels is that sort of mixture of joy and sadness. And Takahata does that much better than Miyazaki does. You know, and I think it's really interesting to look at the two of them separately. Miyazaki is an artist. He's Mm -hmm. an actual visual artist as well, among his many gifts. 
Takahata is not an artist, but in Miyazaki's words, his hobbies are music and study. Hmm. And I could see why that sensibility would also appeal to you as well. Yes, I would choose Takahata, but only if you absolutely made me. Which leads me to my recommendation. I'll go first since we're already on that subject. My recommendation this time around is just for people to watch more Takahata. If you've never seen it, my recommendation, or even if you have seen it, my recommendation is Grave of the Fireflies from 1988. Also a film that Takahata directed that is about two young siblings who are struggling to survive on their own as World War II winds down is grim. I will warn listeners ahead of time. And it is atypical of Studio Ghibli in that regard. There is not that overcoming adversity thing. There is not that joyful, ebullient thing. It is very emotional and very difficult to watch especially for an animated film, which, at least for Westerners, I associate more with children's films, cartoons, more light-hearted entertainment. It is not that, but it is one of the most powerful things I have ever seen, regardless of genre. I think everyone should see it. He has two masterpieces, Grave of the Fireflies and The Tale of the Princess Kaguya. They're sort of opposite ends of the spectrum, and if you watch those two, in terms of style, first of all, and content, you get a real sense of the depth and breadth of his body of work. Those two films are essential for me. What would you like to recommend? Well, I really struggled with this. I mentioned before I thought about E.T. quite a bit Mm -hmm. because it it cast me back to my childhood. It cast me back to those things that were devastating to me as a child, that being one of them. I thought through a number of other things. I was trying to track down what theme I wanted to stick with and nothing was really gelling for me so I thought again oh let me try for an animation because that is a foreign world to me and I decided on one that you also brought to me as you do so many things and that is World of Tomorrow from 2015 (laughs) an animated film that also moved me quite deeply and it is a wonderful short film about a young girl who travels to the future and it is actually her own future it's pretty fascinating very 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 fun to watch a world away from kaguya Mm -hmm. visually thematically directed by don hertzfeld he also did the animation did the editing directed it did wrote it did everything that's a great choice yeah that movie is fantastic i love hertzfeld's sort of extremely black humor It's not cynical to me. It's very dark humor, but it's not cynical. It seems so sincere and heartfelt. And it's not trying to give itself a hedge the way a lot of more cynical black humor does. Yeah, I love Don Hertzfeld. And I probably should have watched it right after Kaguya to get my spirits right back up. (laughs) That or Sound of Music. It's always my go-to. Two great recommendations once again. Grave of the Fireflies and World of Tomorrow. And that brings us to the end of another episode. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook group and we are on Instagram. If you just search Magic Lantern Podcast on both of those, you can find us there. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. 
And I just wanted to say thanks to everybody who gave us feedback and shared links to the show. We got a lot of really fun responses from people in the last couple weeks since we did The Vanishing. Anthony Elmore, Craig Eastman and the guys at FUDS on Film, Judy Brooks, Grindhouse Dave and Jeff Duncanson, Andy Mannion, Mark Herney and Aaron West at Criterion Close-Up, and Keith Enright all gave us feedback and or spread the word about the show. Thank you guys. We appreciate it a great deal. Matteo Boscarol got back to us saying that after the Blue Collar episode, he went out and tracked down the film and really enjoyed it, which is one of the main reasons we do this is to encourage people to find these things that we enjoy and see if they enjoy them as much as we do. We love getting that kind of feedback that we inspire people to check things out that maybe they've never seen before. We also got a couple of great questions from Jane at Some Like It Noir about how we put the show together. Jane asked if we have separate screenings when we prepare for the show, for one thing. I think we've only done that one time, is that right? That's all that I recall, too. We absolutely have always wanted to do it together. In case we have discussion points that we want to go over. Plus it's fun. Right. Going to the movies with you is my favorite thing to do in the world, so I'm not going to cheat myself out of that. It was only once when our schedules, just for whatever reason, we had to, one of us had to get it done, or maybe I fell asleep. (laughs) Possibly something (laughs) happened. The other thing she asked is, do we save all discussions for taping? It seems like our constant refrain these days is, save it for the show. True. It's hard. We get excited. It's really hard. And I want to talk about things. And we also want to make sure that we're not necessarily duplicating efforts and then leaving other territories completely unexplored, which hasn't really happened. So I want to spur some ideas for you or get you to spur some ideas for me, but we don't want to have completely done everything beforehand. What would you say? We talk about it maybe 10%, 90-10%. Probably. That sort of ratio. Yeah. We try to keep a lid on it, but it is really hard it because really I get hard. excited and I want to see what you think. Yeah. So sometimes we have to just stop and do something else. Or Honestly, we would... I think even if we did have the entire discussion, we would still be fine having the discussion again. It would I... just get longer. <laughs> yeah. With... I think you want things to flow more naturally and I I guess I'm a little bit more of a ham and I don't have a problem kind of recreating things Hmm. I just don't want to lose the spontaneity yes basically so and I'm such an excellent actor that I can (laughs) really make anything believable so Eh. but yeah save it for the show buddy so that's how we do those things if anyone has questions feel free to tweet at us send us an email send us a message on the Facebook group we're happy to let everyone peek behind the curtain and or see how the sausage <laughs> is made if we want to mix metaphors. Look inside the kimono. <laughs> that is the trademark from my brother, my brother. I mean, we can't. It's out of love. It's an homage. It's a tribute? Yeah. Okay. It's actually part the kimono. Oh, gross. <laughs> Which is actually appropriate considering. This episode, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what the emperor was trying to do. <laughs> We are also on Google Play for you Android users and Stitcher Radio and iTunes. If you would like to subscribe to the show, one click gets that done. If you would like to leave us a rating or review, that's even better. We really appreciate that, and that gets the show in front of more people. I just discovered this week how to go back and find out about 
iTunes reviews from listeners outside of the U.S. And so there are some that I have neglected, as it turns out, that we hadn't thanked people for that I want to catch up and do that now that I've seen that in the U.K., 42nd Street Freak, which I assume has to be Grindhouse Dave, considering the name, and Craig Eastman and Scott Morris, all three of those guys left us fantastic reviews, and we certainly appreciate it. And Jeff Duncanson via iTunes Canada... Thanks, Jeff. ...left us a really nice review also. So I'm sorry that we missed those. I just figured out how to access that. So a belated thank you to you guys. And we got one new review in the past couple weeks since our last episode from Malcolm Johnson, which was really nice, and he mentioned how glad he is to have discovered us and that we are not snobby, he points out, which I'm really glad that that comes across because I know we talk about a lot of films that are outside the mainstream that might not be as accessible for everyone. We're just really glad, at least to Malcolm, (laughs) that it comes across that way. I think the difference is we are much more enthusiasts than snobs. To me, snobby means elite and oh, this is this thing, but it belongs to a specific group, whereas we just want everybody to check these out and be excited about them. We want to share, not keep to ourselves. Yeah, I have mentioned in this episode E.T. and The Child Bride of Short Creek, so how (laughs) snobby can I possibly be? Not very. Thank you guys for leaving those. It means a great deal to us that you take the time and trouble to do that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material at the website magiclanternpodcast.com and thank you for listening to the magic lantern podcast